Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Sloppy Lab. Uh, this is Bottom of the Beaker, the show all about the design ducks and strategy of Keyforge, everybody's, and I mean everybody's favorite unique card game. I'm JT Russell, and with me tonight is the man who thinks he's 34 hours behind our guest. Maybe 57, depending on if it's uh, daylight savings or not. Uh, we'll have to we'll have to check in with them. But of course, I'm talking about Quick Draw three, four, five, seven. Hello, Quick Draw. How are you doing hey. this evening? I'm great this evening. Thanks for having me back on uh, a second night in a row. I had to <laughs> I had to make sure I changed my hoodie <laughs> just so I didn't. <laughs> uh, I see you got my shirt that I sent from last night after the show was over. I, I had, we we share the shirt, so I had to send it back to you right away in time for the. We're show. actually in. The different rooms in the same studio, <laughs> just <laughs> wardrobe change. But uh, but yeah. So quick draw. Tell us who's in the lab with us tonight. Uh, at least metaphorically, you know. <laughs> we have very special guests who uh, welcome back to the show. One of our most popular episodes from season one featured none other than Astron, and uh, he's back here this evening. Welcome back to the show. Thanks for coming back, Astron. Thanks for having me. I enjoyed it a lot the first time, and you know, I have. Some things to say, some things to share, and I'm looking forward to talking with you guys again. As are we. Yeah, this should be a lot of fun. We have a great, uh, great topic teed up. Uh, I, I, you know, I think we'll be very much a discussion, so this will be exciting. I think it's a, an evolving idea and actually piggybacks off of the uh, topic that you brought last time around that did get lots of, lots of really positive feedback. So I'm excited to see where we go. Yeah, so for those that didn't uh, listen to the first one, it was about uh, empathy. I encourage you to guys to go uh, listen to it, but not empathy as in like the thinking about someone's emotions, but more empathy about in strategy where we look at our opponent's decks and we don't just play our deck as is, but we play our deck that can be proactive against the opponent's deck while also uh, just constructing a game plan that can beat their deck at the same time as using our own decks tools for it to get to the win. And so today I wanted to bring up um, the idea of looking at game flow. It builds on from uh, that topic and it looks at the idea of trying to be in control of the game and what are some pinnacle moments that we, or pinnacle decisions that we have been at least had in front of us in the past that allow us to, that we can talk about now and learn from that can help you guys. And that's pretty much, it's a very broad topic. There's a lot that goes on. Um, part of it is looking at the actual game flow of the game. Another part is looking at how does our mental affect our decision-making. Uh, but ultimately, it's really looking at the idea of resource management and trying to not just um, use our resources just because we're in the lead, but or even if we are behind, but trying to construct a plan to finish the game. Uh, it's as like JT told me before that in chess, the best, uh, the hardest game to win is the game that's already won. Is that what it was? Yeah, hardest game to win is a one game. Uh, they're very fond of saying that, uh, at least on the coffee chess stream. <laughs> Just a lot of fun to follow along. But absolutely, you get up, you get up a piece on your opponent, and they start playing like a grandmaster, and then you like kick up your heels, and you're wondering how you lost a game when you were up by a bishop or a knight, right? <laughs> yeah. Oh, totally. man, that gives me so many bad memories of games where I'm like, yep, I'm I'm like 11 points up material and then back, back rank checks me. And I was like, are you kidding me? <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe I just lost this game. Totally. Um, but yeah, no, that I 
I used to have this idea when I played Keyforge for a few years, um, when I was much younger. Well, not, I say much younger, but when I was a little younger, <laughs> um, like in the early days of Keyforge, where I used to think my best time that I was playing the game was when I was playing from behind, because I felt like playing from behind was the best. Like I had to think about every single tool that I have access to in order to find or solve this puzzle to try and get back into this game. Mm-hmm. And I loved being behind. I loved starting off one or two keys behind and just trying to build my way back into the game. It means that sometimes you lose 3-0 because you just don't have those <laughs> tools, but it's just the most rewarding to come back from behind and very uh, distressing when you are ahead by that much and end up losing. And so how can we then um, think about our resources and try to not just run out of gas, run out of steam towards the end of the game? Or how can we use our resources to get us back into the game? That's probably the main point of this today's discussion. So if, if you like, next time we play a league game together, um, I'm happy to manual mode and give myself a key at the beginning of the game. <laughs> I, I had a game uh, a couple days ago in NKFL that this topic resonates with me because I felt totally in control. I was up 2-0. I had, I think, five Amber, and they had, I think, two. You know, it was like it was fully in control, and I was playing one of my strongest decks. I felt absolutely comfortable with it and, like, kind of using one of the terms we've just used now, like running out of gas or kind of just, you know, maybe I I went too hard earlier and I ended up losing the game, and Mm -hmm. I couldn't believe that I lost it. But it was like it's that exact feeling that you're, you're talking about where, you know, maybe I didn't manage my hands well enough early, and then I just ran out of steam. Uh, it's more than just handcrafting, though. Like maybe I I didn't use the cards optimally. Um, I don't have the ability to go back and watch that game again, but I'd love to because those are the games that I really want to like figure out. Like where did this go wrong? Like wh- what could I have done differently? You know, those kind of things. I do really love this topic because there's the dual nature. There's the there's the very sort of technical resource management side of it. You know, thinking about what my my paths to victory are what my answers or, or ways to to reestablish my a strong position once their board wide comes right. There's there's kind of thinking through all those pieces, and there's also this uh, there's also the mental side of it, which absolutely plays a role, right? You know, not only not only is there a little bit of edge taken off if you start the game down, but if you if you walk into a game and you say, well, gosh, I'm 20 a 20 south point underdog i'm just playing this is all gravy like let's let's just make something happen and see what we can do to win it's it almost i don't know and the flip side the flip side right is if you walk into a game and you feel like like yeah my deck is just better i should win you're almost it's really hard to resist the pull to just fire every shot that you can fire to uh to get to the finish line as quickly as you can and that's a great way to lose uh a great way to lose an advantage right if you if you just kind of pitch your pitch your board wipes pitch your uh you know burn that tmtp for a pip early sort of a thing just because you know believing that you have this advantage that can't be blown it's one of the reasons i hate playing my favorite deck my best deck um playing my best (laughs) deck is one of the most stressful things because and deservingly i lost with it two times in a row in the nkfl this season so far and i'm just a little bit distraught because before that i went on a 48 or 49 game win streak and i was just like i am untouchable with this deck and 
then I was definitely uh, in a place where I was no longer untouchable, and I was I lose some lost some very 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 distressing games that should have probably been more in my favor than I had initially thought. Oh well, that happens. Did you feel like those those losses came because you you know you weren't keeping sight you know weren't keeping your the game flow in sight you weren't you know maybe you felt that the deck was strong enough that you didn't need to be empathetic in your reasoning per se or just you know these losses happen these things happen you know it was definitely my decision making um, <laughs> I appreciate the there, <laughs> there was two moments I remember the two moments that I that I actually lost for those two games the first I'm not trying to do too much anecdotal stuff that's it's hard to track that, especially if you're not watching it in person and you're listening sure. to it. But um, just determining when to, like, there was a moment in one game where I could have just played the board and or played the most cards in my hand, but I chose to steal with a TMTP, but nothing else. And that's great. Stole for four amber, gained five amber total, but then they just went straight up to six again and for the next turn. And I, didn't have creature control in my hand, so I couldn't do anything in the next turn. So playing a unop- a suboptimal tool, playing what felt like should have been a suboptimal turn was probably the better play because it meant that I could have saved this resource of a TMTP for later. Just for those that not, don't know what TMTP is, that's too much to protect. It can still above six. Uh, and so it's a great card that can slow fast decks down. And so when we have those kind of tools we can we should be using them to think about what's the end game a game isn't one in key one or key two it's one in key three and so that's one of the biggest things that i think i have recently been not doing well and i've just been going well let's just smash this game as quick as we can i know my deck's proactive i know my deck's got so much creature control what's the point in like let me just kill this board it's okay of like two creatures yeah, they're two creatures, but they're dead now. So I'm going to win. And then I realized that I just wasted this really good resource that could have taken out their, their entire deck's plan if they if I just wait waited like one or two more turns. Um, and so, yeah, resource management is huge in Keyforge. Like some, we talk about with new players when we try to uh, play the game, a lot of them hold cards to try and get the best value out of them, right? And so we teach them, you need to play more cards. And then at a certain point of the game, they've played a lot, at a certain point in their career of Keyforge, I don't know why I said career, but Keyforge life, they, <laughs> um, they, they are now at a point like, I can't seem to be getting better. Well, now you're, now you're playing too many cards. You need to hold more cards. And so there's this balance that we need to find of when to hold cards, when to play cards. And it's not just handcrafting for the sake of trying to get the best draw to come forward because that is important handcrafting is massively important but sometimes we just need to hold a card sometimes we need to not hold cards if we hold too many we're not going to get through the deck if we don't hold enough we're going to use all our resources up too quickly and i think that is one of the main ways that we need to that is important for considering game flow yeah i think another point here like you're talking about holding cards now and handcrafting but you're also talking about tempo, like that that TMTP mm. play that you referenced. You you feel like you lost tempo because that was the only card you played that turn. You got great value for it at the time, but you lost the tempo. And since they went back to six the next turn, you actually could have had 
a more productive turn to play more lower value cards and then still got that same value out of the TMTP later when it was better integrated into your game flow and your game plan. And so you wouldn't have lost like lost that momentum and that flow that you had, right? Mm, no, 100%. And I knew it wasn't a play I should have played. I knew I should have played the other play. Um, I think part of the reason was I <laughs> my game was at 6.30 in the morning. <laughs> so that was probably... I, no, obviously, I'm not going to put excuses because uh, I don't like doing that. Um, but that it was a factor because I definitely found that in that game, in those games I was playing, every decision just felt so difficult. Every decision of when to hold and when to play cards. I'm like, I genuinely don't know what the right play is. And we're not going to know because we don't always know what the draws are going to come to be. But I think we need to think about the way that we the draws are coming how is like what turn am I going to be playing now that if I don't draw the cards that I need, am I going to be screwed? And maybe you should hold one of those cards to ensure that you have that card mm. the next turn, right? Tempo is a great word to kind of scratch at what's what we're getting at with uh, game flow. The other ones that do come to mind, you also mentioned, right? Gas this is a BHOC, BHOC favorite term. You know, the end game often being decided by the person who runs out of gas more, more quickly and has that one less one less answer at the end. Being mindful of those in the beginning of the game and, and middle game as you're approaching that state is like very important. I also, I also, you know, really think about this as analogous to sort of the momentum of the game or you as a person racing to that third key. It's very easy to get into a, a mode of making decisions very greedily, right? Especially when it's, when it really relates to the cards in hand and how much you're drawing turn over turn, you know, you can look at it, look at your hand and say, gosh, am I really Am I really just going to play one card, let my opponent crawl back to parity on board, you know, when I could be playing three or four in a different house, uh, you know, going wider and, and, you know, maybe forcing them to make some, some moves, you know, with the other thought being like, there is a, there is a board wipe coming at some point, right? It's very difficult to like get yourself to a point where you can say, no, I'm going to let my, you know, advantage on board diminish. Uh, for the sake of preserving some of that momentum for the final push of the game. Mm. Um, yeah. The deck I have up right now on screen for the folks watching along, I've talked about a number of times uh, on the show, uh, Destrotage, Spawn of the Dragon Tower. I uh, don't want to get into yeah too many specifics, but yeah, it's it's a deck that does revolve around a big TMT play, big TMTP play at some point uh, with lots of capture and, and small scale steel to kind of, uh, edge in that. But I bring it up because it's a deck where when I feel like I'm playing it well, I have lots of quiet turns, right? Lots of turns where I'm playing one card here, one card there, uh, just kind of edging closer and closer to the, to the kind of cliff as it were, uh, building up to a board wipe, building up to the TMTP play. Um, and it's a deck that took me a long time to feel like I was playing well because there are a lot of good cards in it and it feels really bad to take a quiet turn when you have big splashy plays in a different house. Um, but I don't know, like uh, it's sort of this, this trade-off of, uh, of preserving the overall, your overall momentum, your overall uh, momentum in the race or kind of flow through the game versus feeling like you're getting, you know, max value from every single play you could possibly make. Uh, in the moment, which may not necessarily translate to, you know, best overall value across the course of the game or best plays in service of your long-term strategy. Mm. Yeah. 
I'm thinking about threats as well. Like you're talking about setting up this big TMTP play and you're always have that threat looming until you use it. And then as soon as you use it, you lose that threat. And that threat, I think, like you're talking about Astron as well in your situation, also TMTP, but there can be other threats besides just scaling error control. They really can affect your opponent's play negatively. And mm. I'm thinking of um, the game that I was mentioning earlier, my KFL game. I have two Nature's Call in that deck with tons of other creature control. And I found myself, I, I ran out of gas when I could not redraw back into my Nature's Calls. And I'm thinking now, like, sure, when I played it, I got good value. I bounced three creatures. I got some Captured Amber back. But if I had just held that, I still could have had that value later at a time when I really needed it. And having that still, like, in my hand or coming up in my deck, they haven't seen that threat yet, I think could really influence how they're playing as well. That doesn't give you that immediate value, like you mentioned, JT, but it is still, like, value that's going to come uh, imminently. Mm, a, l- a large part of of controlling that game flow is giving your opponents more difficult decisions. The more decisions that's put in front of them, the harder their game is to play, and the more variance there is on what they have to do, what they could do. And so, something that I like to do is if I have a a, a little bit of a board, and they have a bit of a board, and we're trying to battle over who gets control of the board. I don't actually always kill all the witches. Mm. I don't <laughs> or I don't have to if I know that by putting out by leaving them with equal number of houses on board, they have a harder decision on to what the next turn is. Because just because there is a good card on the board doesn't mean it has to die because they may not be able to use it right away anyway. And they may even go into a suboptimal turn to use it just because they want to use it and i've seen it happen so many times where people are like there's a great card on board i have to use it i have to use it but it meant that they disrupted their own game flow to do so mm-hmm. and sometimes it does buy you back uh and it's harder to know when that is the right decision especially if you go look they've just played a bunch of logos cards the likelihood that they're going to play a bunch of logos cards again is low so if I fight other things and keep Logos boards, Logos creatures on the board, they're probably not going to have a chance to use it. And then occasionally they call Logos again and play four more Logos cards and use those Logos creatures. So it doesn't always work, uh, but it's a way we can disrupt, I guess, their game flow on by putting as many decisions in front of them as we possibly can. And that comes from board management. That comes from... My favorite cards are bounce cards. I love bouncing cards back to their hand. And I love putting things back on top of their deck because those sorts of cards can, you can just decide exactly what kind of draw they're going to have for the next few turns. I love facing Halifest decks so much with the decks that I play. It's really weird. It really <laughs> is weird because, well, Halifest are going to give themselves chains. And I often am ready with a board control card, some sort of board wipe. So if you board wipe right after, if they're not going to get value out of it straight away, then you board wipe, it goes back to the hand. They now have three chains or so and an extra three cards in their hand, meaning if they don't have Brobnar cards in their hand already from the new draw, they're going to have to play another turn just to get those creatures out or they're probably not going to get through the deck very well. I love facing those kinds of decks. 
Yeah, this is so good. And I know some great questions in the chat too, which you're, you're hitting on now. So I want to acknowledge it a, a, a little bit here too. Uh, there was one from, uh, from Cloggin, you know, well, you know, when or what signals kind of indicate that players should change their tempo or try to affect the flow of the game, right? Uh, or even, you know, let me try something else instead. And I think a big part of that is, you know, recognizing which player is on the spot to make something happen or, or needs to make something happen that's different to alter the flow to change the outcome of the game, right? Might be, it might be in their Halifus example, like with, with your bounce and disruption, like if, if their plan is just to keep going back into Brobner and unloading those dudes, it's not going to go well for them. Uh, or it might be in the TMTP example, understanding that as the player facing TMTP, I've kind of just got to draw it out so I can burst next turn. So you know what? Take my four amber, take my five amber now. That's fine. I need the freedom to burst ahead for keys two and three uh, and just and just need to flush it out, you know? Um, and not flushing it out is such an, has such a negative impact to my flow downstream that I, I just need to take the hit and make sure that I draw it out now. Um, so I don't know, re- really interesting examples for sure. I think another point with that where clog in is that I try to do this once I've got, if I'm ahead and once I got that second key, there's definitely a shift in the game and we definitely feel that we're getting close to the end game. So both players are starting to think about what they got, what their plan is going forward. And so sometimes what I do in my, once I forge the second key, I can give myself a little bit of time just to think about, okay, I'm getting close, most likely getting close to a reshuffle if my deck isn't super efficient. They're most likely getting close to a reshuffle. How can I think about the cards that I have now and the cards that I could have on the new draw to prepare myself to win this game? Am I just going to burst and go always be checking, get to six as quick as I can? Am I going to try and force a combo turn where I try to get this key charge or some sort of key abduction sorted? If I spend too many resources on that and it doesn't end up happening, does that cost me the game? And so thinking about re-changing your plan, like what is your, once you get to that second key, your game plan is completely different. You're now going, now how can I win this? And so you don't have to be foot on the throttle the entire time you're playing the game. You don't have to be trying to force every single interaction to be in your favor. I think there's this classic example in um, Super Smash Bros where if the opponent has a counter, sometimes I'm going like ham on my combo and then... You know, I know there's a, an opportunity for them to then counter because of the, the frames and whatnot that I just don't press a button. They've countered and now I'm back into my combo again because I didn't get attacked by their counter. And that's something I like to think about when I'm in keyforge. I'm like, well, they have a res- they may have a response to me pushing even harder. Let's just take it slow for a second and think about what I'm going to do. You're kind of like getting to a point where this is starting to click for me a little bit too. Like when you talk about flow and you talked about like pivoting to a different game plan like is this the right game plan for winning the game or did i go all in on the key abduction and and miss on it i have some decks that have a few different paths to victory and such an important part of of winning some matchups is understanding when you can go for a data forge play or when you need to play a grindy game or when you need to play a rushy game and i think a really cool part about this i think is um kind of visualizing and, and having an understanding of what, like where you need to pivot before you have to get there. And I think that's kind of like what you're hinting at with the game flow is like understanding like, yeah, they have this TMTP coming 
And so I'm going to play into that by doing something different and kind of being one step ahead of them. And then when it works in your favor, you really like, you feel good about it, right? Like you really feel like you're in the, in the flow. Uh, and so it's like a different definition of it, a different thing that you've been talking about. But I, I think it's totally relevant. Like mentally, it feels great to be like, yeah, I made this amazing play. I predicted what was going to happen three turns ahead. I anticipated them using my empathy of what their deck was trying to do. And you had a plan for it, like to counteract it. It, actually, that reminds me, back when I could play IRL Keyforge, because that's when Australia had, pre-COVID, people would play a lot of the game. Um, it was also around the time, maybe it was just after the first lot of COVID, we had KFBL1. And I had a, there's an Australian player who was a friend of mine who I almost saw him as a mentor slash coach for me because I managed to be one of the only players to Australian players to qualify for the first KFPL. And I was like, I don't know how I got here, but I'm here. <laughs> so I need someone to help me. <laughs> and he just said one game we were playing. I think it was like a you, you had three decks, you picked one at the start of the match and you played adaptive. And he was like, your opponent is going to, on about turn seven or turn eight, they're going to play, a, they're going to try and go for a gateway arise control the week all in one go that's about what their deck should do around turn seven or eight and then so he said you should just hold your punctuated for around turn six just hold it for that time and then play it right then and it worked exactly as he said it and i was just like what how did how did you how did you know this would happen and he's like that's just how that deck wants to play it wants to get to the certain point and usually around turn seven or turn eight it would have enough creatures in the discard pile that it can set up for this combo. And so you just be patient with your punctuated. You don't need to play it. You need to save it for when their deck's plan is about to hit. And you can usually find, a, by understanding their decks, you can recognize that there's different plans that they can do that is going to win in the game. So you need to know how to stop that and prevent that from happening. You can also read into like some of their turns right before those kind of combos where like, they suspiciously only played one card that that turn. You know, like they're obviously getting ready to do something like with a library access turn. You might see like if they're setting up for a big library access the turn before, they might go into disc just to play like a single creature and then pass the turn, you know, or or a single creature in library of the damned and pass the turn. That's when you know there's like an inflection point where they're about to try this and you just need to be a step ahead of them. This kind of reminds me of some nice combos and threats and um disruption from some winds of exchange decks like you think about like what you can do with the befuddle if you time it well like you're talking earlier astron about like what if i just leave their witch on the board and tempt them to go use it even though they just called that house twice in a row and then they do it and you're doing that like you're baiting them sort of to go into that house and be like i dare you to call untamed a third time in a row and then you go into your unfathomable you kill it and you befuddle them and they can't do anything and they lose that entire tempo they thought they were gaining from using a witch is gone now and they just lost an entire turn. Love that. I loved it. I love those ideas. It's you don't always see them in the games, they don't always pop up. But sometimes you can look for them and when you see them and you're like, okay, I know how I'm gonna win this game. And then execute it flawlessly. Well, not always, but flawlessly. And it's just such a satisfying feeling when you know that you have slowed the tempo down in your favor and then the game flow now is yours and you're in control. Yeah feels like there is a lot of stuff in Winds of Exchange. For as much as much crap as I give the set, there is a lot of stuff in Winds of Exchange that lets you kind of control the gameplay, I think, a lot better than previous sets. Totally agree. Totally agree. I don't like the set besides Unfathomable and Mars, but the rest, 
It exists. It's a set that exists. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. I mean, are you thinking mostly of the unfathomable cards, quick draw, or uh... I would say largely, yeah. Befuddle, abyssal sight, um, catch and release, illusions. Um, I think you know things like closed door negotiation can actually be used to really set up a major game flow interruption if you're going to follow it up with an illusions or a befuddle, because sure. they're going to be like, this is great. I just drew like five more cards. Uh, and they sure they gained a lot of amber and they stole it from me, but I have a huge hand now of eleven. I'm gonna play six cards from one house, and then next turn you befuddle them and you wipe their board, and they literally can't do anything. So that value they thought they gained from that closed door and drawing those cards is just completely negated. The 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 abyssal sight and catch and release are very interesting to me too, uh, particularly in and how they can sort of punish punish you know handcrafting and some of your flow preservation. Or at least or what I would call flow preservation, right? So you can definitely find yourself in situations where it, there are diminishing returns on some handcrafting and some uh, some of your long-term planning. And if there's an abyssal site looming, are you going to hold that punctuated equilibrium for the turn six or seven right before the combo or not? Because uh, they're they're very potentially going to use it to uh, to set up to set up the big turn. So I think it cuts both ways, and also. And also underscores the main point, which is, you know, you have to be mindful of these things and put on your empathy hat there, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and recognize when you actually should take the immediate advantage and maybe be a little bit greedy with some of these things, uh, or at least at least only in so much as you're not putting all of your all of your eggs in one basket. Yeah, totally. Um I think this something that's really interesting is that there's definitely a lot of people have put forth that once you get to the high level of Keyforge, the thing that distinguishes the winner on an event is usually the RNG. Because where it's such, like, the decks are so good. Or, sorry, RNG and matchup. Like, if your deck just better the opponent's deck. Uh, but, and I just can't, I can't put myself in that mindset of, of RNG having that much influence. I think there is some times that I've felt in games where, uh, there's decisions that come in, in front of me where had I made a different decision and for the future draws, I probably could have played that game better. And I don't think there is anybody in this game that is going to play every game perfectly. That is impossible. Otherwise, there's no point in playing because just like give them the trophies and everyone else stop playing. Like there's no point. You need to make sure that we don't just think that RNG has a that much of an influence i just don't i can't fathom that being a thing it's there's i don't know I, so if i can try to help a little bit here i think what you're saying is that yeah there's going to be luck involved right but you need to have a lot of skill to manage that luck or mitigate it or anticipate it and mm -hmm. when you're going to have the luck when you need the luck when you don't need the luck and you just need to make a safe play right yeah definitely and i think sometimes we make decisions going well I know my deck can do this and it does this most games. So I'm going to play it like this because it's going to draw me those cards perfectly. And I'm going to be ready for the rest of the game. My game plan is set up from the beginning and I have, I'm not going to bother adjusting as the game goes on because I know my deck does it. It's done it nine out of 10 times. It's not going to possibly be that one out of 10. And if it is, I'm just going to blame my loss on luck. Can't handle that. I do that. I did it way too often and I still do it way too often, but it's also a pet peeve, even though it's one of the things I have done way too much 
my one rule for myself is to not blame, blame losses on luck. Even when I secretly believe, you know, it's probably what it is. Uh, I'm always looking for the, like with the one thing that I could have done better. Um, and I, I tend to agree with you. I mean, I think at the high level, like, yeah, there's a lot of people who are making the right decision most of the time. And I think maybe quick trial, you had said this, but, but even still the difference between folks who are making decisions in the 95th percentile versus the 99th percentile, like there's a lot, uh, there's a lot of daylight in there when it comes down to the sorts of decisions that you see in the latter rounds, uh, buying for a top cut or even in the top cut kind of, um, kind of a position, like looking back on my KFC run, like I definitely had some games where I drew very well and that's probably a big factor in how and why I won, but at least one of the games I lost, I could, of the two, right. I can point to a very specific decision that like, Nope. If I was really playing at my best, or or had really thought through things well, or was considering you know the the flow of the game, I probably that was a winnable one. That was a winnable one, and it wasn't just like oh man, I wish I had done the other thing. In hindsight, like no, like with the information I had at the time, uh, I think the right decision was achievable. Um, and I mean that that happens. It's uh, it's it's definitely. Well, I guess the counter is like, hey, maybe you're just not at the top, the top of the player list, JT, and that's fair. That's fair. Uh, but I think that uh, that's a lot more co- common than folks want to say, and it's just very easy to write those off in luck. But like, that's also the beauty of having a game with variance in it. Like, without without luck to blame, yeah, there's a lot more feel bads to go around. <laughs> right. Yeah. But like, I guess it does feel pretty bad when you lose chess because. People equate it to, uh, I'm just simply superior to you. No, um, I know, I know. Sometimes, at least with, because I work at a school and the the kids there, there's definitely this hierarchy of who's the better player. And when one of them loses that shouldn't have lost, they're definitely a very sad and get very testy and yeah, don't aren't enjoyable to be around, but. Yeah, I know I think that's important to have luck in 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 the mind when you're making your decisions. You're not going to draw the things that you want to draw every single game. Your deck's not going to do the same thing every single game. You need to think about what is my turn now? What is my turn in 3 turns? And what is the end of the game look like? And how can I turn the turn now into a turn that's going to be benefiting me in 3 turns and then the end of the game? I need to think those things through and I wonder if we even need to start making a bit of a plan at pregame. So Coggan made a point about, uh, what do you say? He said, going into a game, before you have any cards in your hand, can you or do you make a decision about how you want to drive the flow of the game? Mm-hmm. And yes, 100%. I often go, well, what cards do I need to see in my opening hand? Let's think about if I was to get these cards, how would the game look? Or if I don't get these cards, how can I plan myself into a way that the game's going to become my game to control. Yeah. And the really interesting ones too are, you know, you identify cards or interactions that are going to be key to the end game, but you draw them within your first hand or two. And it's like, am I going to, do I have time? Can I chain myself the whole game? Can I, can I play it now, discard it now and and then hope to redraw it? And how does that play out? Uh, Those, those get very interesting and I think can be very, very skill testing. Kind of reminds me, I was talking to Sky Jedi at KFC a few weeks ago, and um, he said that one of the large things they were trying to go for with Grim Reminders was changing how players perceive holding cards. 
because I think in the past we're always like, I just got to cycle my deck and reshuffle my deck. And they were designing Grim Reminders to keep in mind, like maybe you don't want to just cycle your cards, play them as fast as you can. Maybe you do want to hold more things deliberately, knowing that there's so much discard pile manipulation and that your opponent can manipulate the discard pile and you're not going to get that chance to shuffle like you want to shuffle all the time. And it might be better to hold cards for the right time. And so I'm kind of excited to play more of the Grim Reminders for that reason, because it does sound, and it felt like this too in the games that I played of Grim Reminders at KFC. It definitely, I could feel this. And he mentioned this to me after I'd played those games and it really, it kind of made sense. I was like, yeah, like I, I could definitely feel that. It came through in the games that I'd played. I've been super excited for that set. I have played a couple of other card games in somewhat competitive, like I've won a tournaments for things. And nine out of 10 times, the decks that I like to pick up, are, well, there's two different kinds of decks. One kind of deck is graveyard decks. So decks that just kind of recur lots of things and you just dump things on top of your deck and then bring it all back. And that's just so fun to do. And then the other kind of strategies, ones where you hurt yourself in order to get benefits. So um, if you don't, if um, you know anything about flesh and blood, there is a hero, uh, hero, is it called heroes? What are they called? Heroes? I don't know. I don't play it. Archons? They're called Archons. Yeah, Archons. Now, um, there's a character that you essentially purge things, but these cards can be played from the purge pile. And if they're left there, you get damage dealt to you. So you have to, like, it's like slowly burning yourself, but you're getting benefits from it in the long term. And so mm. that's the kind of game I like to play in like those two kinds of games. Ones where you just want to dump your things into your discard pile and then try to do things from there and use your discard pile as like a second hand or things where you hurt yourself in order to gain the benefits or you take a slower turn in order to gain benefits like in Keyforge. Sometimes those decks can be a lot of fun because you want to slowly get yourself into a shape, yourself into a game state that's really fun. And that's why I was really disappointed when Woe came out because my favorite deck that I like to play was a flood deck that could keep coming back with recursion. And it was fine. It was a great deck. And it's not necessarily that Woe beats it or because they tend to like your opponent having small creatures, but the decks that beat Woe also beat my deck. And so <laughs> I'm already having a tough time with Woe. And then I'm having an even more tough time facing the decks that are also good against Woe. And I'm just like, I wish this deck, this meta didn't happen this way because I just want to play my game where I am I build a board, they kill it, I slowly bring it back, kill the board, bring it, and then eventually I purged away their board control and I've gotten myself to a game state where I cannot lose. And I love those kinds of decks. Um, yeah, no, they're definitely, it's great. And I'm so sad that Woe came out. <laughs> <laughs> well, the pendulum, the pendulum will swing. Uh, we'll see mm -hmm. We'll see what Grim Reminders does to the, to the Woe meta, as it were. Um, but I mean, I... I, I definitely appreciate the and to generalize from your points like there's this like idea of resource exchanges and using kind of non-standard re resources uh yeah life as a resource from the chat and from the mtg world is definitely a thing that that we think on and you know your graveyard as a resource is not really something that we've explored a ton of outside of specific cards like glimmer uh or you know zoom per se but as more of like a, a first class resource um and well, well, we'll see. One that's often abused in games, right? Uh, definitely in the MTG world, uh, you can see lots of abuse from graveyard as a resource. But I think it's cool that uh, that I really think it's cool that they're 
putting so much emphasis on challenging notions that we've had about the game or held as, as certain. And I, I know we mentioned this uh, last night or a week ago, depending on when you're listening or watching, um, with some of our bad card discussion or design discussion. Like, I really love Strange Ordination because it forces you to really, like, on the nose, like, is three chains worth three amber? Like, no, no other questions. This is like, like, are you, are you willing to exchange cards for amber now? Um, and I will see we'll see something similar like with, uh, with Grim Reminders, not necessarily cards for Amber, but challenging uh, a long held notion of like whether or not you should be holding cards or pitching them, you know? And I, I like that they're kind of in this mindset of helping you like peel back layers of assumptions that you have about how the game operates. Um, and kind of force me to explore those, which is really cool. So then let me put something forward. Do you think that Grim Reminders is going to just, not destroy, but distort our idea of game flow because our resources are no longer are less limited than they were before. I think it's too soon to say. Um, no, I don't think it's going to though. I think it's just going to change. It's going to make it different. There's going to be different ways of utilizing the game flow. I think when you have different opportunities that are presenting themselves to you, like if there's a till the earth is a untamed action that I think is really interesting, where it just says both players shuffle their discard piles into their deck. And in the context of Grim Reminders, that could be devastating, or it could be, you know, like massive disruption, uh, or it could just be a discard, you know, like in recognizing those situations of what, which one of those things you're trying to use it as, like, are you trying to get your opponent off of Haunted? Are you trying to turn off their Exhumes and Infernus engine that they have going? Or are you just discarding that because you need to stay Haunted yourself? I think, I think it's kind of related, you know, like, there's going to be cards like that, that you have to make a decision, like, am I going to lose my game flow because of this? Or am I going to kind of set them back enough? I, I just think there are going to be different ways of manipulating this. It's not going to necessarily just be as simple as like holding my TMTP threat. I think there's going to be more layers to the conversation. But it's like you're going to, you can play a board wipe and then immediately archive it from your discard pile. Yeah, <laughs> some of this stuff's crazy, right? Like, like I know that's on a very simple level and we don't know necessarily how this set like plays as a whole with the other sets involved and i haven't played it outside of i was a play tester for it um so i can't really give too much of what i experienced other than i enjoyed playing it and yeah it's something like it's a, it reminds me actually what it reminds me of is my one of my favorite board wipes is key to dis key to dis and then this doesn't sound quite sound like it's in the same ballpark but key to dis has this ability to just sit there and you don't have to hit it ever. You never have to use it because that means that they have to think about, well, am I going to play a bunch of resources now, my creatures, and then it just all gets blown up. And I remember Aviator was talking to me about one of the games last season where he's like, I was just, I was trying to think about around playing around that key to disc because you just left it there and I didn't know what to do. And I didn't know how to like what I was supposed to do going forward. Like it meant that I, he didn't play as much board. It meant that his game flow was out and I just waited because I'm like, I'm just going to save it because he didn't have artifact control. So I just saved it for when I had a couple of brands and then just went, well, now I'll use it. You've just played board. Here's some brands. Boom. Uh, now I have your Amber and all your board is gone. And so just patience. And I love the patience of getting this. It's such a fun card. Unless they have artifact control, then it's more like I need to play this and use it as quick as I can. <laughs> That's how I feel with the Lifeward. 
Mm. You just want to like squeeze that life word in before they find their poltergeist. Otherwise, you're in big trouble. Hundred percent. Yeah, I, lo- I love these cards though. It's the uh, it's the sort of like only way out is through uh, when you when you're posed with them as a threat. When you see folks pose that decision and decide to try, they decide to try and go around as opposed to going through. That's when they can really get into trouble. You know, uh, man, I had had a had a game very 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 recently where I was facing uh, two copies of uh, Mars Needs Amber. I still have to go to check. I've got a ton of I've got a ton of damaged creatures, but I still have to go to check. Otherwise, they just sit on those cards and never play them. And what am I going to do? Never check for another key for the rest of the game. Uh, that's not an option. So you know you have to like have to push through some of these things. And key to just is the same sort of thing. Until you force it to be used, it's just going to be a stone. You know your shoe as you're running the race, as it were. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I I want to. I want to uh, make sure we had a couple of other questions too. Uh, we've talked a lot about uh, both kind of the uh, strategic side, you know, the, the tactical side, as it were, of game flow, and also a little bit on the uh, the kind of mental side. Maybe swinging back to the mental side, do you, you know, this is a question that that we had in our kind of our notes. Like, do you have any pre-game rituals or mid-game rituals even that you do to make sure that? You know, mentally, you're you're in the zone, or as much in the zone as you can be. I'll pause it there. Uh, I asked you a related question, Quick Draw, a, w- a couple weeks ago. We were talking about uh, visualization and computation. Mm, I like that episode. Yeah, that was fun. And I I asked once, Quick Draw, if you had any, uh, if you had any kind of rituals that, uh, or uh, like a, like a rigid thought process that you go through in order to make sure you're calculating kind of correctly or visualizing correctly, uh, turn over turn. And, uh, and I, I think you were said like, n- not particularly, you know, kind of, kind of just, just kind of go through it, shoot from the hip as it were. But I, I feel like, you know, if you think of, you know, the baseball player who like touches their wrist and their elbow six times before going to bat, there are like things you can do to make sure that you're like, make sure that you're not missing things, or at least putting yourself in a mindset to be as in the flow as possible or as in the zone as possible. Um, I don't know. Are, are there other things that you, you all do or, or not particularly? Set up my strain. Set up your stream. Yeah, <laughs> is that like a, um, actually a ritualistic thing, or? It, well, I used to have some rituals. Like I used to do some things, and I had the same playlist that I because I used to get really stressed whenever I played competitive Keyforge games. Really stressed, mm. and almost to the point of like, like shaking partway through, or even like towards the end of the game, just realize I haven't been breathing for a little bit because I just won the game, and so something that I guess has distracted me is by by streaming. I have i think i have to get all this stuff set up before the game so i don't have time to think about it too much and then i can if i've given myself enough time i have the chance to to look over the decks and talk the decks out loud i am a i talk when i talk out loud that's how i think well try to organize my thoughts and so it's easier for me to by talking out loud and even if it's not a conversation, I'm still processing what's going on on their decks and what is going on with my deck and what I can do to win this match. It's a much, um, it was very, I used to do something similar when I didn't stream, not necessarily talk out loud, but just um, would spend a couple of minutes just before the game, just looking over the two decks and going, okay, how does this card interact with this card? What can I do? to set up a plan at what point of the game do i think that they're going to start to really try to take control can i try to uh 
disrupt that in some way? Am I the proactive deck in this situation? If I'm not the proactive deck, which cards are going to be my most important cards that I need to mulligan for first? And just going through the motions of what is Keyforge and what is it with these two decks. I don't always do it. I don't always do it well because sometimes you don't have time. You just want to play the game. Um, but I think that getting yourself into a zone is really important. Getting yourself, you're mentally checked in because if you're not in the zone, you tend, at least for me, I get tilted really easily. And I'm trying my best through each stream to get better at that. But if I'm not in the zone, I'm not listening to my favorite album of all time, then and it's harder. It's much harder. What is uh? What's your favorite album of all time? Uh, yeah, the band the is thing. called Nothing But Thieves, and the I like the both their main um albums, Broken Machine and Moral Panic. I'm it's very a, glad you did not say King Gizzard and the Wizard Wizard. Say <laughs> say what? They're an Australian <laughs> band. I thought I was like I was sure that he he knows who these guys are, but apparently not. <laughs> my my brothers are obsessed with them and i was like he's gonna drop a king gizzard reference right now isn't he thank god yep no idea i'm all right i don't know what even know the genre nothing with these is a indie rock okay. okay i guess king lizard king gizzard probably are too i don't are know you, if you can stuff up quick draw over I, 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 <laughs> listen i i give my brothers crap all the time over this band and their name specifically and I was just mm-hmm. terrified that you were going to name them Astron. I was like, please don't, <laughs> please don't name this Australian band. Um, but you didn't. So kudos to you. Nice. Nice. Yeah. I don't know. I, uh, I, I don't know if I, I have some, I guess, uh, some, some rituals in this sense. Like I definitely use the two minutes, two to five minutes or whatever it is, uh, at the start of a game to review list as sort of a settling moment and try to be very, very intentional about, Imagining how the game's gonna play out, identifying like uh, key combos or not, not necessarily key combos, but key cards at different points points in the game. Like the, that's borderline ritualistic for me uh, at the start of a game, and I think tends to be helpful. And a mid game, I, I do try to also have like like a pause moment to reflect before taking any actions because I I don't know we, we all we're all there from time to time playing a, a random comp game on TCO. You're in like junk food key forge mode forge mode you're just like i'm gonna like do the greedy thing every time and just see what happens and those are usually when they're uh, racking up the l's you know yeah um, but it, but it's it's it takes effort to play well i guess that's obvious um yeah, but but yeah it's it's i mean it's worth it to also take those few minutes at the start of the game and a few moments at the start of each turn for settling or or whatever your ritual happens to be um, but putting yourself in a mindset where you're in a place to make good decisions or feel feel good about your decisions. I was going to say I didn't have any rituals, but now that you mention it, in IRL Keyforge, I definitely have more. Like I'll do a six-pile shuffle um, mm-hmm. and kind of like reorder the piles the same way and do some regular regular shuffling with that. Definitely like to take a full, like focus two minutes in the Archon card. But online, I don't really have any of that. Archon, it's like get my coffee, close my door, and like just make sure i'm ready to go like not really much more than that yeah but i I just like you astron i get i get very nervous as well for those competitive games definitely do some pacing mid game sometimes some pacing mid game i like that i have a 
a disadvantage IRL because one of the things that I do, even when not streaming, is I'll like talk out my turns out loud, like just be sitting there at my desk talking about my ideas, you know, doing the uh, the rubber duck debugging, you know, finding my bu- finding the bugs in my decision making, um, uh, which I'm not going to do uh, IRL. Uh, I mean, Beehawk does it IRL. But, I was just uh, going to mention Beehawk. He told us some funny <laughs> stories. He has a tendency to just kind of like talk out loud about what his opponent should do. And he said he's gotten himself into a few situations where his opponent's like, actually, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. I'm going to do that that's now. That's a good idea. I'm going to do it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. I mean, this, is a bit, this has been great. Uh, we're, we're just past the hour. I don't know. Uh, let's see if we had any other any other big topics or thoughts we wanted to hit before moving on no i guess kind of did hey that's i feel like we've covered a lot of really good points to do with game flow we may not have necessarily talked as heavy on mental but it's definitely something to think about like when you're not mentally in it you're gonna make you're gonna find the decision points much harder much more difficult Mm -hmm. and so i'm not sure if but that's also can be a whole thing on its own, a whole episode of just talking about how to mentally get into it and how to not be get tilted. I'm probably not the best person to to be the expert on that because I I definitely struggle with some of those uh, concepts. But I know that at least at the end of every game that I play, every stream game, when I'm talking to the chat, I go, okay, what did I do? that it could be improved. Even if I win, I still say, yeah, I won that game, but I'm sure I could have improved on what I did. So what can, and I think that's important to do in every game, is to just reflect, 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 reflect. What is the purpose of learning if you're not going to reflect on the games you've played? Yeah, 100%. Totally agree with that. That's something that I really, um, that's why I appreciate having you on. Like having that mindset, I think is so important. We always try to talk about like ways to learn and get better. And I think that's such an important part is that to not blame luck, but to just say like, what did I do wrong in that game? You know, like, sure. Like I just ranted for five minutes about how I had the worst draws of all time and I lost the game, but like, okay, I'm, I'm done venting. Let's be real. Like what could I have done differently to prevent that? I, I love that approach to it. And I think everyone should have that same, same kind of aspect of a game after you uh, win or lose. I have this philosophy that, I, uh, whenever I get to a brick wall in my learning and that if I don't feel like I'm progressing, I try to reset myself in my expertise and go, you know what, I actually going to look at this and go, I don't know anything about this. Let's look at the fundamentals from again and go from there. And how can we move, keep moving forward? And so I'll often go back and listen to many people's podcasts. That's why we have this information out here. So that we can just talk about what like about the game and often very often and i don't just do this in keyforge i do this in a lot of things if i'm struggling to keep learning i want to i always try to go back and go okay let's look at the fundamentals and let's build from there and try and see what happens and every single time i've tried to do this i have excelled further than i was before when i had gotten to that brick wall yeah there's i think there's a lot of brick walls um, I mean, I, I know JT's trying to wrap this up, go to bed, but there, it's interesting that you mentioned the brick walls because another thing you mentioned earlier, JT, is how the difference between like the 95th and the 99th percentile, um, that's a concept that I actually, I think I got it from now in stereo for the first time where he talked about how 
it's pretty easy to go from zero to like 70% in Keyforge. And there's like a bit of a wall at 70. And then to go from like 70 to 90 is like, you know, once you get over that 70 pump, it's fairly easy to like keep progressing to the point you get to 90. But then like that last few brick walls that you hit, 90 to 91, 91 to 92, et cetera, like those are really hard to surpass. And I think that's why you see such a difference between like the top tables. Like Ashron, you're talking about, you know, like people think that, oh, well, everyone at the top tables is skilled and it just comes down to luck. But no, like there's a lot of difference in skill between someone who is playing 99% efficient and someone that's playing 97% efficient. Like those can definitely be difference makers in this game. 100%. The last, the last few percentage or percentile points of efficiency are really hard to, really hard to achieve. And that's where, I mean, frankly, a lot of those games are decided um, when they're decided by skill, certainly. So it's tough. It's tough to say um, how much, how much it takes to get them, but it's a lot. It's a lot. I don't know. I don't know. I have work to do. I know that much. <laughs> no, everyone does. Yeah, yeah, everyone does. Yeah, a lot, and a lot of names come down to one hammer. Yeah, some some great great thoughts from the chat here too that we we've been neglect, neglecting. But yeah, so many games where you, you come down to one amber and you just like imagine all of the decisions that were one amber difference makers. Absolutely, absolutely, those are achievable by the last last few percentage points. You know, you, you shrug off like, a, ooh, that was a that should have been a, a reap instead of a fight or a fight instead of a reap. Um, I mean, those are those are often worth at least an amber, um, and so many that come down to the one. And even if it's not like oh, I lost by one amber. There are there are plenty of turns where, you know, getting to that sixth amber is is so important that it drives you out of a, out of one turn one house into another house, right? Like like, mm-hmm. and then those those differences make a big impact. Absolutely, it's like Z says, Keyforge is a game of losing, at least half the time. Well, like, sorry, by that I mean, well, he meant your decision points. Every decision point for the top level. Every decision point is a decision of losing. Like if you, not necessarily you choosing to lose, but the player with the fewer mistakes tends to win the game. Mm. And so you mean this is this is two players seeing which who blunders first, as opposed to uh, who can who can re- you know it's not who reaches the bar, it's who's going to like trip, sort of, uh, as it were. Yeah, interesting. I hadn't really thought about it that way, but you know it's very much very much chess analogous, right? I mean. You can only go down from a perfect game. It's not like you're going mm. to score ten more runs. Like, no, you just keep playing, keep making perfect decisions until eventually someone, someone doesn't. That's only in a perfect game. Obviously, that doesn't always no. work. <laughs> no, not not. I mean, yeah, uh, hyperbole, but yeah. Well, speaking of brick walls, <laughs> I think we hit. I think we hit it. <laughs> oh, so maybe we'll want to hear a word from our sponsor. I don't I know. I think we do. Yeah. Okay. Okay, we have a we have a juicy one this evening. Um, I feel like we've had a lot of uh, there's just a lot of uh, food aligned sponsors that we've had. It must be something about our show that's really attracting the the foodies the, <laughs> the foodies in the in the crucible. Uh, but this one is actually sponsored by uh, Slimy Beef Jerky. Uh, so you've got to try some Slimy Beef Jerky, the Crucible's oh favorite gosh. snack <laughs> that's forging a new flavor frontier. Crafted with precision, savory and slimy collide in each chewy strip. Grab your decks and grab your appetite because with slimy beef jerky, flavor is forged three keys at a time and every bite is a legendary adventure. Indeed. Have you guys tried slimy beef jerky? I don't know. You got to give it a shot. No, no. 
I mean, I've had kangaroo kangaroo jerky, but <laughs> have you had kangaroo jerky? Yeah, it's great. It's very oh man, very um, what's the word we use? Gamey. Yeah, probably robust. It's very it's a very rich flavor. Think about rich beef, flavor. and then just add a bit more depth to it. Jake, have you had venison jerky before? I honestly don't eat a ton of meat, uh, though I will eat beef jerky. I will say I will eat beef jerky, but I've not tried venison jerky. Actually, Astron, how many jars of Vegemite do you have in your house at this moment? None. You're a dirty liar. I'm dirty. Dirty. I, don't eat, I don't like Vegemite. <laughs> I mean, if like, we turn I'd the eat, camera around, we'll it. see jars of Vegemite. I'll eat it on a slice of toast, but it has to have like half a kilo of butter. I'm going to call that in the chat. Is it, was that a racist question? If it was, I apologize <laughs> for my ignorance. <laughs> it's, it's okay. It's not a racist comment. But people have referred to Indigenous Australians as Vegemite. Really? Mm. As a word, as a term for the people. As a t- racist, racist, racial slur. As like a racial slur. I did not know that. I but it's like that. an older term, and people haven't had it in a while, so it's like no one really. It's not. So don't worry. Don't stress. It's okay. Well, he's gonna have it mm. fixed by the producer in post. But you know, I yeah, don't I'm like. Not- I don't like um, Vegemite all that much. It's disgusting. i've never tried it it's just really 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 salty and umami flavored so it's like if you have a little bit with a large slather of butter on some toast it can it can go all right but if i'm gonna yeah no thanks interesting i've only heard people rave about it you're the first person who i've ever said say that it's not good but like Mm, they grow they grew up wrong i literally just had a conversation about this like two days ago with some friends and uh, the comments about Vegemite were not good. Interesting. I yeah. um, yeah. Over over the holiday, I got to spend some time with uh, uh, my brother in law. Who there's a different there's a different type of mite. Yeah, that, marmite. Uh, marmite. Thank you. Mm-hmm. I, it also sounds made up to me, but they they're a big fan of marmite, but not it's Vegemite more in this it. time. Interesting. It's, yeah, much sweeter. That's nicer. I like it more. Um, but yeah, with like. <laughs> Vegemite. It still annoys me whenever I see like videos of people eating it because I just grab it with a big spoon and then lick it. I'm like, no, it's not like. Even though I don't like it, it's still not how you're supposed to eat it. You're meant to eat it in very <laughs> small amounts on a nice slather of buttered toast. Marmite is made from marmots. Data for stream. They, I mean, we got the facts right here. Marmots. What is marmot? Mm-hmm. I think animal. they're they're related to yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's an animal. That's, uh, yeah. Uh, Any, like, anyway, uh, we're uh, we're derailing. I should probably let the folks know that uh, Bottom of the Beaker is recorded live right here, twitch.tv slash sloppy lab work. Uh, Tuesday evenings, typically 9 30 Eastern. Uh, you can find recordings of our past shows and other streams over at youtube.com. Search for at sloppy lab work over there. And for the very best content, uh, 34. No, no, 57 times distilled and scraped from the bottom of the beaker. You can search for that very phrase in your podcatcher of choice. And we'll be there ready to share a spoonful of Vegemite with you. Uh, <laughs> find all that more at sloppylabwork.com. Thanks very much, Astron, for joining us again. Uh, it was no a problem. pleasure to have you on. Yeah. And quick draw. Any words for the folks getting off the final audio stop? Just want to say thanks to Astron as well. Always fun to have you on. Thanks for coming back. And everyone listening, stay sloppy.